Let me welcome all of you today. Super glad you're here. If you need some more elbow room, our first service has a little more, and Saturday night at 6 has a little more. I think that uh, that's the one I'd go to if I wasn't the preacher, but my wife makes me come to each one. So <laughs> here I am. Hey, if you didn't get this little packet or an individual, uh, uh, it's, it, we call it a church invite, but it's got a plan of salvation on the back. And I'm going to be referring to this in my sermon today, and I want you to have one. If you didn't get this little packet when you came in, raise your hand, and an usher will put one in your hand, and, and in the midst of the sermon here, we're gonna, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll use it. But we've been doing a series, a sermon series called Something More. It was kind of like starting 2023, Something More. And what I mean by that is that my spiritual life in this new year would grow deeper but I would also become more productive in my Christian life. Now, how many know being a Christian is more than just going to heaven when you die? Being, being a Christian is doing the task that God has set before us, that God has called us to do on this earth. So this is what we're talking about. So today, uh, as I talk about something more, I want to talk about the big picture of our life. And my introduction's a little longer because I want to tie together two or three thoughts in it. But I want you to contrast the temporal things of life with the eternal things of life. Let's talk about this idea. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4. It's about living the Christian life. We fix our eyes not on what is seen but is unseen. In other words, our gaze what we're looking at, what drives us, what motivates us the most. Uh, and he says this, what is seen is temporary. My truck, my house, my garden, my yard, my hobbies, my, the clothes in my closet, all these things are temporary. The experiences of life, they're temporary and they have no lasting value. But what is unseen is, e is eternal. In other words, right now, we cannot see Jesus himself sitting at the right hand of God the Father, but it's real. We cannot see into the angelic world and the demonic world that surrounds us, but it's real. But we become more aware that we are living with eternity in mind. Uh, to, uh, today, I'm going to challenge you in this idea. Uh, he, he goes on to say, the things we see will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And I want you to think of that phrase, last forever, because nothing on this earth lasts forever. How many know that? You get a brand new house in a certain period of time, you're going to have to fix something. Nothing, a new car, it, it's going to break down. But there is something eternal. Paul realized that most things we do are temporary. And when I say temporary, I don't mean they're bad, but they're just not eternal. For example, I'm having a Oh, what would the word be? I'm having uh, withdrawal pains now because duck season's over. So I could comfort myself by one of the many sales that come my way and buy yet another duck call or another camo pattern, and I've already got all I need. Now, come on, everybody needs a duck call. I've got one for, my, for little Mia. She's one and a half, and I got her blowing a duck call. Okay, nothing wrong with duck calls, camo patterns. But what if I use that money and I bought a case of Bibles to send to the nation and put in the hands of Muslim people? Again, it's not a choice between what's good and what's bad. It's a choice between what's temporary and what's eternal. 
And our challenge is to find a, a, a balance in both. Uh, how about, uh, let's say you got an hour to kill and you just like to watch videos on TikTok or something. I mean, you know, there's some funny stuff out there and you're just killing time. Well, what if you took the first couple minutes before, if that was a regular uh, pattern in your life, what if you just now prayed for Turkey for a couple minutes? Pray for the people that are still alive and buried there, and then watched your videos. What you've done is you've inserted something eternal in a world that's temporary. Um, how about, uh, uh, how, ma how many are going to watch the Super Bowl? Who's going to win? I'm still rooting for the Cowboys, sorry. Um, but any Cowboy fans here? I thought they were going to make it this year. But let's say you go to a Super Bowl party. People are there. I mean, you know, you're going to try to pick out the best commercial. The Bud Light bottles will be doing something, of course, and, and all that's going on. But what if you just look for one person that was there that you perhaps didn't know or weren't super acquainted with and just kind of warm up to them and, and uh, ask them this. Just say, hey, man, I've had something really cool happen to me. What if I could tell you about it? And then just give them your Christian testimony. And that's a couple minutes. It's not that long. Then you're back to the Bud Light commercials and the Super Bowl and everything else. But what did you just do? You mixed in something eternal with something that was temporary. Now, this is kind of where we're going. Um, if you've not looked at one of these little booklets, it should be in the back of the chair, but it's called Inside Lookbook. I would take this home with you today. Uh, we've got them in the connect room too. But on page four, uh, it's kind of a menu of uh, what you'll find at Church on the Rock. And one of the phrases, the last one, it says, an opportunity for significance. Now, when I, the word significance means doing something truly important and consequential because it has eternal value. Now, how many know our investment in Pakistan, our investment in, 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 in missionaries, in mission works, our investment in our, our youth in our city, our kids' zone? How many know all that has an eternal value that's to it? Uh, what we do, we do a lot for Christ. I mean, if you're a Christian... Many of us, it takes hundreds of volunteers uh, uh, over the weekends to serve what goes on here. Uh, you know, we give to the Lord. We live godly lives. And all this stuff is a part of Christian life. But I want to tell you what I think the Bible clearly teaches is should be the most important priority of every Christian. And I don't say that phrase lightly. But the most important priority, what should be number one, and we're going to listen to the words of Jesus himself because he said it four times in each of the end of the Gospels. He said it once in the book of Acts before he ascended to heaven. Listen to what he said in Matthew 28. He told his disciples, and a disciple is simply a follower. We might call him a mentor and a mentee. Uh, the mentee would be the disciple. But uh, uh, Jesus told his disciples, go. Everybody say go. Go and make disciples of all nations. We just had a team, uh, Linnell led, going to Thailand. This week we have a team that's going to Mexico, going to all the nations. Another translation says, go and make followers of all people in the world. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. Now, how many know before you become a follower of Christ, you're first born again? In other words, you first, we use the terminology, you get saved. You're born again. You're spiritually converted. 
you've had that defining experience as I had in my life, August 15th, 1976, raised in a little country Methodist church, knew the Bible, but yet I was walking (laughs) away from the Lord. I was not evil. I never murdered anybody, never raped anybody. I was just a good old country boy. Come on now, drinking beer and having fun. Just like most of you. Come on, don't look at me so holy. And whenever I have, it's a true story now, whenever I have a problem, I'd stop and look back. I remember one night I was driving home and I should not have been driving. The, uh, there was a flood and, <laughs> and literally the water was coming to the edge of the road there. Uh, and uh, I didn't think I was going to make it. So I pulled over and I prayed and I asked God to be in the car with me. And I got home and I put him back on the shelf and I kept living my way. But I had a defining moment one day when I turned away from my sins and turned towards God. And I believed in Jesus Christ, and I've been following him ever since. Now, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus wants us that to be our first priority to help people have that experience. Help people be converted. Help people be born again. Help them go to heaven when they die. And the second priority is to help them grow spiritually as a follower of Christ. How many know when we're born again, we're a baby in Christ? It's like we're just starting out, but we grow and mature, and then one day we're productive in the kingdom of God. So here's my question. How do we do that? How do we lead someone to Christ, and how do we disciple them? That's what I'm going to help you with today. That's what we're going to talk about. But first, I want to talk about why. First, I want to talk about our motivation. Why should this be important to me? And I'll tell you why, friends. Every person you know and every person you meet will either go to heaven or hell. Your family, your friends, the people you work with, your enemies, the person that waved the middle finger at you and you wouldn't let them in driving the car. Everybody is going to go to either heaven or hell, according to the scripture. And I can be a part a vital part for me in my life, what started it, of course, my mom, you know, she got me a Bible. She got me, you know, I uh, made me go to church, but I went and I learned it, you know, uh, it didn't change me yet, but a Gideon one day shared his testimony with me before I joined the Navy. And that caused me to say yes to Christ. But now I have an opportunity to do the same thing. Everybody we know is going to spend uh, uh, eternity somewhere. And I want to help you today do more, do what you can, do what God has called you to do as a Christian to reach more people for Christ and to make disciples. And I've entitled this, The Eternal Significance of a Soul. Let's talk first about heaven, hell, and eternity. Again, this is the motivation part. But I want to look into the future. It's Revelation chapter 20. It's near the end of the Bible. But it's a day in which time as we know it will have ceased. There will be no more cars on I-30. There will be no more, you know, people going to McDonald's. It's called Judgment Day. And this is a serious part of the message. But Revelation chapter 20, uh, John said, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Who's that? That, That's God himself. That's the creator of the world, the sustainer. Verse 12, I saw the dead, 
great and small, presidents and those that serve presidents, great and small, standing before God's throne. Now, how can you be dead and standing before his throne? It's because this, when you are born one time, you become an eternal being. You're not eternal. God is eternal. We had a beginning point, but from that point forward, our body will die, but our soul and our spirit will step into eternity. The Bible teaches for those that have rejected Christ before they go to hell, there's a holding place of the dead called Hades. Before the resurrection, the holding place of the believer was called paradise. And you remember at Jesus' resurrection, paradise was open. People came from their graves. But here we see people standing before God's throne. And notice what it says. Uh, books were opened. In other words, well, the books were open, including the book of life. Now, the book of life is literally a list of every person who has chosen to believe in Christ who has received forgiveness for their sins because they became a believer in Jesus and they walk with God. That's the book of life. What's these other books about? Friends, the Bible teaches that God knows the number of hairs on our head, and that's not just a metaphor. He knows how many used to be up here. He knows the thoughts you think. He knows every action that we commit. God knows everything and it's recorded. So how many know, would it be fair to say everybody's a sinner? <laughs> it only takes one. You can be a good sinner or a really bad sinner, but how many know all of us are sinners and the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. And one day it's this great white throne and you're in trouble if you don't know Christ. And verse 15 is very troubling to me. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You will not hear, sadly, from many pulpits talk about hell. But Jesus talked about hell more than he did about heaven. Now, I'm going to get to it, but first let me talk about heaven because it's much better. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is not just the movie Field of Dreams and that kind of new agey kind of, you know, if you're old enough to remember that movie. You know, heaven is not where, you know, all good people go to heaven. I mean, it's more than, it's a real place. Revelation 21, verse 1, John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, God is going to recreate this earth. Let's all be good stewards and take care of it. But uh, uh, listen, one day God's going to recreate this planet. Uh, a new heaven, a new earth. And I heard a voice from the throne. And listen to this. It says God's home is now among his people. God will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. In other words, one day the Lord is going to look at you for the first time and call you by name. Just as, I don't know what, if you have neighbors that are good friends or somebody drops by your house, you have relationship with them. You and I as Christian people will have relationship with God face-to-face, -face, just like Adam and Eve did. It's a real place called heaven. It's not a fairy tale. Notice what else it said, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. How many know when sin came in the world through Adam and Eve, that's when all the mess started? That cross is what fixes what was broken 
So one day in a real place called heaven, they'll meet no more of the trash that we face. Come on. We won't get old. We won't have IRS agents. There won't be snakes, mosquitoes, all the bad things. They'll be over. That's a promise in the scripture. Uh, life will be perfect. Followers of Jesus will live forever in a perfect place. But my friend, for those that reject Jesus, on judgment day, we heard the phrase, the lake of fire. It's a synonym for a place called hell. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 13, just as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, in other words, in their day, they didn't have gas stoves. They would have you know, grass or, or sticks and they'd make a fire and they would make their food. So he said, just as the weeds are burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. In other words, life as we know it will one day cease. The son of man, that's Jesus, will send out his angels and notice what's going to happen. They're going to gather out of his kingdom all who cause sin and all who do evil. How many know when you become a Christian, your life, when you are genuinely born again, you're not perfect overnight, but a change begins to happen. You were going one way, and let's just say, let's just say you were violent. You were part people that carried a gun, not just to protect yourself, but you know, <laughs> you, 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 were, you would do what it takes. You would lie, you would steal, you would cheat. And when you come to Jesus Christ, you still got one foot that wants to pull you that way. Because you still got your old buddies and they're pulling you, but another one is pulling this way. And pretty soon you say, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to be a violent person that steals from people. I'm not going to be a hater. If we want to solve racism in America, this is how you do it, friend. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And where you used to throw rocks, come on, now you throw hugs. But Jesus changes us. It's called the process of sanctification or maturity. He changes us on the inside. Uh, but uh, where were we? Um, but, but there are some people who will continue to do evil in spite of the offer of God, and the angels will throw them in a blazing furnace, now whether you like it or not, where people will cry and grind their teeth with pain. You say, how could a loving God do that? Well, let me tell you this. Hell was not created for people. Let me tell you what a loving God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Hell was made for the devil. Matthew 25, uh, uh, Jesus said, when the king, he returns, he'll turn to those on the left, those that have rejected him, those that have turned their back on God, that have mocked him. And he'll say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his demons. Listen, the Bible teaches God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all people to be saved and know the truth. But just because God wants people to be saved doesn't mean they will be saved. Everybody gets a choice to either follow Christ or reject him. Uh, uh, let me give you some quotes about the afterlife. Have you ever heard of a man named Stephen Hawking? Yeah, he was a brilliant man. He died a couple years ago. He is called Britain's most eminent scientist. And here's what he said. The belief that heaven or an afterlife awaits us is a fairy story for people afraid of death. Now, he has influenced the world of science, and he influences philosophy. 
He influences people to obviously not be a believer in the need for a savior. How about Bill Nye, the science guy? He's a pretty brainy smurf sometimes. He says, life after death does not exist. He thinks there's overwhelming evidence against the idea of an afterlife. So here's the question I want to ask you, and if you're watching online, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Bill Nye? Are you going to believe Stephen Hawking? Or are you going to believe Jesus? Now, I don't know about you, but, and I find this somewhat ironic. Do you know where Stephen Hawking was buried? In Westminster Abbey, which is a church cemetery. You can go to his grave today. It's still covered. I'm sure it's a big headstone. But if you go to Jerusalem, to the two, one of the two places they think Jesus was buried, you look inside and nobody's there. And what these brilliant scientists have forgotten is they've forgotten the place of history as it undergirds science. The Bible is not just a theology book. It's not just a, a book for the weak-minded. It is a history book that is confirmed by archaeology, and history records that literally hundreds of people saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. So you've got to decide who you're going to believe. Let me give you one last quote here. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, it's from a man from the 1650s. Now, that's a long time ago. But how many know you've always had brilliant people and you've always had idiots? Today, I think the scales have tipped towards the eye side. His name is Blaise Pascal. He was a French mathematician and philosopher. And he promoted what, what philosophy should teach. He was a philosopher. Uh, I doubt you'll find it in a secular philosophy class, but it's called Pascal's Wager. Look it up on the internet. Pascal's Wager says this, and it's kind of archaic English, but he says, let's weigh the gain and the loss in wagering that God is. In other words, you're wagering your human soul, your eternal soul on whether God exists or God does not exist. Let's estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. In other words, if you believe in God and the Bible is true and God is real, my friend, you have made the absolute best decision of your life. But then he says this. He says, if you lose, you lose nothing. In other words, if, you believe, if we believe in Jesus and we are, like the secularists would tell us today, just poor, uneducated, scared-to-die people, if, we're, you know, if, if, if that ends up being the reality, I want to say this. I've had a great life. I've been married to a great lady for almost 40 years. I've got three gay kids. I love my house. I love my garden. I love to duck hunt, turkey hunt. I'm having fun in life. I'm enjoying myself. I'm still healthy. I've had a great life. So, so what Pascal is saying, listen, if it's true, you cannot assign a value to it because it is so worthy. So what have you got to lose? I mean, that's, that's the, anyway. So the Bible's clear. There's an afterlife, and we should be motivated to help people go to heaven and not hell. Now, let, let, me, let me get real practical the last few minutes here. How do I win a soul to Christ? If you've ever had the privilege of praying with someone to receive Jesus, it is one of the greatest privileges you'll ever have in your life. 
But how does that happen? Let me talk to you about personal evangelism a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. What does that mean? You're born again. You're saved. You're converted. You become a new creation. But then he says this, we are, God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. In other words, in my life, there was this kid, and his name was John Miller, and God saw from the foundation of the world what he wanted to do with his life. The only problem was when he was 18, 19 years of, uh, uh, of age, he was just living a worldly life. So God, the Holy Spirit, began to deal with his heart, and he sent a Gideon before I joined the Navy and the Gideon gave me a Bible, and five days later, I wrote my name in that Bible and committed my life to Christ. What did that Gideon do? He reconciled me to God. He took my hand and he pointed me to Christ. God has given all of us that task. We are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. And his appeal is we, we speak for Christ, we plead, we plead, we beg you. Come back to God. What, is that? what does that mean? That means that heaven is real. Hell is real. We want to see heaven populated and hell depopulated. We want, to, we want to make it hard to go to hell from Texarkana, USA. Come on. This is what this passage, but listen to Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The thief on the cross didn't have time to go to a Bible study. He was crucified with Jesus. All he did was look to Jesus at the end of his life, and he said, save me. And Jesus said, I will. But listen to this now. This gets really close to home. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? Our Pakistani friends told us of Muslim people. Did you catch him when he said, if you evangelize on the street, it's the death penalty. So would it be fair to say most Muslims are blinded to the truth? But when you pierce that world, they've never heard. How can they hear unless someone tells them? For me, it was the Gideon. It was my Sunday school teacher. But for the, your friends and your circle of influence, it's you. Now, this is the most, I think, provocative statistic of the day. Uh, George Barna, a, a pollster, a researcher, he said hundreds of thousands of Americans embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior for the first time every year. Now listen to this. Only 7% do so in response to the preacher. Only 7% do so because of a teacher in a Christian class. 93, hear this, 93% of the people that make decisions to follow Jesus will be because a friend or a loved one cared enough to personally share the good news. What does that mean? 93% of your friends, 93% of your family will not be in heaven because of me. They'll be in heaven because of you. And there is a weight that should be on our shoulders. There is a responsibility that should lead us to pray. I've got some people I pray for every day of my life because I have taken a burden for their soul on my shoulders. So here's the whole question of the day. What do I say, preacher? 
If I'm going to lead somebody to Christ, what do I say? I'm glad you asked. I want you to take out this little packet here. Now, it's a church invitation, but I want you to look on the back. How I many if you get someone to church, they'll experience the presence of the Lord. They'll hear the Bible. But look on the back. Are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? Now, I want you to, you're going to have to go a little bit deeper with it for yourself. You can just give this to the person, but wouldn't it be good if this was in your head and in your heart? That when you're talking to someone after the, let's say it's at the Super Bowl party. I'm just thinking out loud here. And it's the third quarter, and it's clear who's going to win the game, or the fourth quarter. And the guy that shared, you shared your Christian testimony with during halftime says, could we talk a little more? What would you tell him? First, you tell him, well, there's a problem that all of us have sinned, and that's what separates us from God. And the horrible consequence of the problem is judgment day. That's a real place called hell. But the solution God has provided is that Jesus died for our sins. He took our place. It's like, tell him, it's like you got a car, you can't make the payment, the repo man's coming, and somebody comes up and they, they pay the whole thing for you, and they give you the keys back. Somebody's paid your debt of sin. But the decision is, are you willing to turn from your sin and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? And you bring them to the place where you say, would you like to pray with me today and commit your life to Christ? And just tell them, repeat after me. And say, you've heard it said a thousand times. Lord, forgive me for what I've done wrong. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Today I choose to turn from the world and its ways, and I choose to follow you. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior and change my life. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. That is how you do it. But never underestimate the power of your testimony. When you go to court, the judge is not going to ask for your opinion if you're a witness. All he's going to ask is what you know. And how many know sometimes we feel intimidated? We feel like, well, I don't know enough about the Bible, or I've never been to Bible school, or I can't answer whether it's a young earth or an old earth, or, or I can't answer a lot of these. What does a witness to say? A witness says what they know. And all I can tell you is, is this, friends. I used to be going this way. I met Jesus Christ, and now I'm going this way, and I'm having a better life. And what he did for me, he can do for you. Come on, there's power in your testimony. <laughs> Let me give you a couple practical things that you can do. Just distributing Bibles and Christian literature wherever you work. Let me show you a picture. I went to the doctor the other day, and I think I'm fine. Um, but look what I saw on the doctor's table, a Bible, and look what somebody put under the glass, <laughs> a church invitation. <laughs> okay, what, so what does this mean? If you've got your own little cubicle and workspace, and I'm, I, I got this idea this morning, and I think I'm going to do this, but uh, you know, I wrote a little book. It's called uh, uh, The Bible Simplified. But it's, it has the, 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 the trail of salvation that goes through it. And I think I'm going to make them available just for free and, you know, make a little, you know, thing where people can just take one. Do that. Do a church track. Put a Bible out. Christian literature is, is powerful. Uh, here's the second one. Engage people on social media. How um, I many of social media can be a bloody ugly place? I was listening to my daughter yesterday. And she was talking about a fight between two people that she knew. 
And rather than going, how many of the Bible says, if you have ought against your brother, what do you do? Post it on Facebook. <laughs> no, the Bible tells you to go to your brother. But, but, but these two friends of hers were kind of duking it out on Facebook. Well, that's, that, 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 that doesn't work. Relevant Magazine says 30% of Christians use social media to evangelize. Now, I started uh, uh, um, experimenting on TikTok with a daily prayer, and I got a response from somebody. Here's what it said. I'm not a Christian, but I really like the video. Thanks for making it. Now, what does that tell me? That tells me this guy is turning towards Christ, and I just sowed a little seed with eternal value. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Now, let me give you another one that's going to surprise you, something practical you can do. Serving in kid zone or powerhouse. And I'm going to tell you why. The Barna statistic, again, is going to shock you. Kid zone is, they told me the other day they had like uh, the weekend and Wednesdays, and it's some duplicates, but like 476 kids that come to be imprinted on with the word of God. And Pastor Cole has 100 plus that's over in the powerhouse that are worshiping God, serving God, praying with kids on football fields. Listen to what George Barna said. 6% of adult Christians make their decision to follow God over the age of 18. In other words, if you're over 18, only 6% of that population will ever choose to trust in Christ. 94% made decisions to follow as children that follow them the rest of their life. A child is a sponge. And this is not just kids owning powerhouse, a coach. How many know a coach can either teach you how to cuss and drink or teach you how to pray and be kind? A teacher at school, you've got more latitude than you think you have. Listen, here's another one. Use the financial resources God has entrusted to us to reach the world. This is big for us. This is one of our cornerstones, missionaries. You say, why do you bring so many missionaries? Because Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and I can't go as a white guy Christian. But nationalists can go, and they go and they take the gospel. The resources. We sent $2,000 a few weeks ago to India, and they're going to, a church in India, it's a Hindu village. They don't have fresh water, and they're going to dig a water well right by the church, and the church is going to give not only fresh water to people, but living water to people. You see, where did that money come from? It came from you. You give money, we turn it into ministry here and around the world. My brother from Turkey, and I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to have him come in a couple of weeks, but I was talking to him, and I was listening to him weep, and he was is a man that's all he's built most of the people that he knew he's invested his life in uh, uh, died. And uh, it's, to me, it's like, wh- wh- what, are you, what are you gonna do? And he said, I'm gonna give the rest of my life to keeping the church in Turkey alive. I'm gonna take, I'm gonna feed, I'm gonna provide medical care, not just to the whole nation of Turkey, I don't have that much, but I'm gonna help the church Christians get strong because the Muslims, the 50 church members that died that were former Muslims, they're in heaven, come on now, because of the investment of his life, and that's eternal. Let me give you one more. Pray and ask God to change people's hearts. Now, sometimes we've done all we could 
But I want to tell you, it's a true story. Uh, I became a Christian at 19, and one of the things I did is I went home and I began to tell people that were influential in my life what I had done. And there was a lady, her name was Mary, Mary Street. Uh, she happened to be my nanny growing up. And it was in the, uh, this was like 50 years ago, it was the old South. Uh, her husband worked for my dad on the farm, milk cows and all, but Mary was my nanny. And uh, she's an African-American lady. But when I went to see her, uh, I'm, I'm a, a 19. She'd had both legs amputated because of diabetes, and she didn't have prosthetic limbs. She's sitting on the couch. She'd lost all her hair from treatments. And I told her, Mary, you just, let me tell you what I, I did. I committed my life to Jesus, and I'm following him. I thought she was going to jump off that couch and start walking towards me. She said, Lord's a mercy, baby. I've been praying for you ever since you were a child. She prayed me into the kingdom. I'm telling you, friends, prayer has power. Now, give me five more minutes, and let me tell you how you disciple someone. You remember Jesus, how he made disciples? Well, let me use a modern parallel about a doctor. Uh, uh, how do you, if I were to just go on Facebook today, or I, I don't want to go, who wants to go on Facebook today? Okay, I need a volunteer. Okay, you're going to go on Facebook today. I want you to go get some, some green scrubs like a doctor, and I want you to get a scalpel, and I want you to offer to remove polyps from someone's colon for $45 to $50. <laughs> Do you think you're going to get any people to, to come? No way, Jose. The first thing they want to know is, are you a disciple of the medical profession of a surgeon? Do you have your surgical credentials? Here's what disciples, here's what that doctor does. First, they learn in class for a couple years. I learned through what's called the Navigators. After I got saved with the Gideon, I went to Millington, Tennessee, and they discipled me. They taught me through seven books they had, the basics of Christianity. These doctors-to-be learn in class. Then they start walking around the hospital, and they're just watching. And then their mentor will ask them, what do you think is wrong and what we should do? And then one day they're going to have the answer and then they'll get their diploma and then they'll start their own practice and then one day they'll mentor somebody. That's the exact way we do with Christians. I had a couple in my life called Dave and Bitsy Krupa. The Gideon led me to Christ through the Bible. Uh, the navigators taught me the Bible. But it was Dave and Bitsy Krupa that helped me clean up my life. I got off the boat or the airplane in Adak, Alaska as a young Navy man. They opened their home to me. I started going to church with them. Uh, they would cook. They had kids. But guess what? They started talking about John Miller's life, and some of my problems came up, my issues in the world and, and my worldliness and my pride. And in a very loving way, they helped me get rid of some things that could have destroyed me. Everybody needs a mentor. Come on. Nobody's going to call her and give her 50 bucks to cut the polyp out. You're going you, you're to go to somebody who's been discipled and trained and mentored and you're going to get the best help available. That's, that's how disciples are made today. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy, and I want you to hear four generations. Paul says, you, Timothy, should teach people. Paul, father, Timothy, son, people, grandson. And these people that you can trust, things that you and many others have heard me say, and then they'll be able to teach others. 
father, son, grandson, great-grandson. If Christianity would multiply itself that way, we would change the world. Well, listen, I'm going to close with this. There's another motivation. I mean, certainly we have burdens for our family. Certainly we have burdens for people that we work with. But how many know we should be burdened for the world? But sometimes, you know, knowing about heaven and hell is not enough. Let me give you one more motivation. God's going to reward you one day. If you were to read the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, what you'd find is this. Three different, they're not parables, but they are teachings of Jesus about the end times. The first one is about his coming. The last one is about judgment day. But sandwiched in the middle is what's called the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents emphasizes this. The parable of the talents says there was a man... Um, the master who went on a long journey. And that's a picture of Jesus going to heaven. And when he left on his journey, he gave his servants a talent. It was a measure of silver, like a bag of coins. And he said he gave one five, one two, and one one. And he said, I want you to take these and invest them and make money in them because I'm going to come back and you're going to give an account. So what does that mean? In real life, it means Jesus has given every Christian abilities, resources, talents, and time to use for the kingdom of God. And then when the master came back, he spoke to the one who had five bags of silver, and the man said, I've gained five more. In other words, I've led five people to Christ. I've served in a nursing home. I've gone to the mission field. I've prayed countless hours of prayers. I have sown scriptures. I have given Bibles away. I have done those things to advance the kingdom of God. And listen to this. Jesus is going to look at him one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, and they began to celebrate. I want to tell you, friend, listen, Danny, Jesus knows every time you've gone to Mexico and dug a water well or built a church, we've had some fun down there, but we did more than had fun. We did something for the kingdom of God that one day is going to be rewarded by Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, should do a little bit to nudge us in the direction. Because listen, friends, what I'm talking about today is eternal. What I'm talking about today is significant. My house is not going to last. My duck collars are not going to last. What's going to last is what I've done for Christ. Come on, give the Lord a big hand today. He is worthy of our praise.